Hello, friends. My name is Hannah, and you are listening to She Reads, They Eat, a podcast for all of my fellow literature lovers or for anyone wondering what they should read next. I cover all kinds of reads from children's book to classic literature to science fiction and fantasy. I read, you listen, and my Patreon community sends 90% of their proceeds to the hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, and needy. The other 10% is used to bring you even better content. Most of my podcast is free to listen to, but for as little as $1 a month, you can join my Patreon community for exclusive content. Thanks so much for listening today, and let's dive right into today's reads. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of She Reads, They Eat. I have something a little fun for you today. Um, It may be a shorter podcast. It's been quite a long day. I always make the mistake of recording these on Sundays, and Sunday's just kind of a crazy day. But at the same time, I'm always in the mood to get projects done. So it's going to happen better on Sunday than any other day. So let's jump in. Oh my goodness, there's sticky on one of my books. Does that make me happy? I have six books for you today that I have really enjoyed. And, um, yeah, I have six books for you today that I have enjoyed in the past. And I just wanted to share a little bit of them with you. None of them are recent reads, so I thought that might be fun. Um, as I'm usually sharing what I'm reading or what I'm going to read or what I just have finished reading. And so these are older books that I really like. Um, So I'm going to start with um, The Scarlet Letter. I have The Scarlet Letter here by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it starts in this way. It is a little remarkable that, though disinclined to talk over much of myself, my affairs at the fireside, and to my personal friends... Just a minute. Sorry. Do, 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 do. No, that's an introductory, but why don't I start instead in chapter one? The prison door. And this isn't exactly a read aloud, but more just little snippets of some of my favorite books. Um, I'll probably start at the beginning with each of them and then maybe share a little bit about them. But I just wanted to share pieces of some of my favorite books with you. So the Scarlet Letter starts like this in chapter one, titled The Prison Door. A throng of bearded men in sad-colored garments and gray steeple-crowned hats, intermixed with women, some wearing hoods and others bareheaded, was assembled in front of a wooden edifice, the door of which was heavily timbered with oak and studded with iron spikes. The founders of a new colony, whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project, have invariably recognized it among their earliest practical necessities to allot a portion of the virgin soil as a cemetery, and another portion as the site of a prison. In accordance with this rule, it may safely be assumed that the forefathers of Boston had built the first prison house somewhere in the vicinity of Cornhill, almost as seasonably as they marked out the first burial ground on Isaac Johnson's lot and round about his grave, which subsequently became the nucleus of all the congregated sepulchres in the old churchyard of King's Chapel. And that is how that book begins. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this one. It is said to be a dramatic, moving depiction of social defiance and social deference of passion and human frailty. 
Set in the harsh Puritan community of 17th century Boston, this tale of an adulterous entanglement that results in an illegitimate birth reveals Nathaniel Hawthorne's concerns with the tension between the public and the private self. Publicly disgraced and ostracized, Hester Prynne draws on her inner strength and certainty of spirit to emerge as the first true heroine of American fiction. Arthur Dimsdale stands as a classic study of a self-divided. Trapped by the rules of society, he suppresses his passion and disavows his lover, Hester, and their daughter, Pearl. As Nina Baum points out in her introduction, the Scarlet Letter was not written as realistic historical fiction, but as a, quote, romance, end quote, a creation of the imagination that closes the truth of the human heart. And it really is a beautiful book that does do this beautiful depiction of how an individual can affect society and how society can affect an individual. Now let's move on to the only children's book I have. We, I read this one to my boys over the Oh, shoot, we probably read it in uh, over the winter almost. We kind of finished it in January, so end of fall, beginning of winter. And chapter one is titled Sam. Walking back to camp through the swamp, Sam wondered whether to tell his father what he had seen. I know one thing, he said to himself. I'm going back to that little pond again tomorrow, and I'd like to go alone. If I tell my father what I saw today, he will want to go with me. I'm not sure. That's a very good idea. And that's the beginning of The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White, which, of course, was written by the same man who wrote uh, Charlotte's Web and whose first book was Stuart Little. So the little bit about this book is the main character is actually Louis, who's a trumpeter swan. He was born one summer on a little pond in Canada, along with four brothers and sisters, but Louis has a terrible problem. Unlike the rest of his joyfully noisy family, Louis can't make a single sound. And without a trumpet sound, his true love, the beautiful swan Serena, just ignores him. Louis's father promises to help. So does Sam Beaver, a boy who loves all wild animals. First, Louis goes to school with Sam and learns to read and write. But swans can't read, so Louis still can't make himself understood. That's when Louis's father puts his honor aside and steals a brass trumpet to give his son a voice. Louis's determination to pay off his father's debt and to woo his own true love takes him far from the wilderness he loves. But his faith and his joy in life are always with him. And it really is, as a Saturday Review once said, a masterpiece. It's really a gorgeous book. I think it might be my favorite of E.B. White's, even more so than Charlotte's Web. Now, another book that I enjoyed in the past, and this one's the beginning of a series, and I still, I don't know, the jury's kind of out on the whole series. Um, but I know I really, really liked this idea, and so the first book kept me enraptured and interested. So let me just read the opening paragraph of this one. Chapter one, I hate first Friday. It makes the village crowded, and now in the heat of high summer, that's the last thing anyone wants. From my place in the shade, it isn't so bad, but the stink of bodies all sweating with the morning work is enough to make milk curdle. The air shimmers with heat and humidity, and even the puddles from yesterday's storm are hot, swirling with rainbow streaks of oil and grease. 
And that's the beginning of a book titled Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard. Let me read you the synopsis of this one in case you haven't heard of this series yet, because it's really um, a kind of a fascinating concept, but it also falls into that fun, dystopian, um, YA category that so many of us readers love. Mayor Barrow's world is divided by blood, those with red and those with silver. Mare and her family are lowly reds destined to serve the silver elite whose supernatural abilities make them nearly gods. Mare steals what she can to help her family survive, but a twist of fate leads her to the royal palace itself, where, in front of all the kings and all his nobles, she discovers an ability she didn't know she had. Except, her blood is red. To hide this impossibility, the king forces her into the role of a lost silver princess and betrothes her to one of his own sons. As Mare is drawn further into the silver world, her actions put into motion a deadly and violent dance, pitting prince against prince and Mare against her own heart. From de- debut author Victoria Aveyard comes a lush, vivid fantasy series where loyalty and desire can tear you apart in the only certainty is betrayal. Really is a fascinating concept, as you'll find as you get into the book more. Let's see. Now, this one many of you are probably familiar with, and I think I've read the opening lines before. So let me read instead of the opening lines the second paragraph. Chapter 1, An Unexpected Party. It had a perfectly perfectly round door like a porthole, painted green, with a shiny yellow brass knob in the exact middle The door opened on to a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, a very comfortable tunnel without smoke, with paneled walls and floors tiled and carpeted, provided with polished chairs and lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. The hobbit was fond of visitors. The tunnel wound on and on, going fairly but not quite straight, into the side of the hill. Oh, sorry, I lost my place there for a second. The hill, as all the people for many miles round called it, many little round doors opened out of it, first on one side and then on another. No going upstairs for the hobbits, bedrooms, bathrooms, cellars, pantries, lots of these. Wardrobes, he had whole rooms devoted to clothes. Kitchens, dining rooms, all were on the same floor and indeed on the same passage. The best rooms were all on the left-hand side going in, for these were the only ones to have windows, deep-set round windows looking over his garden and meadows beyond, sloping down to the river. And if you hadn't guessed already, that's The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's so much faster paced and so much less long, annoying descriptions of scenery that it is my favorite of his four, the four or five books of his I've read. I've read the entire um, trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, and I still much prefer The Hobbit. Now, another one, which I think I mentioned on a podcast once about blue books, is The Longest Winter by Julie Harris. It's um, a historical fiction about a man who crashed in a solo flight on the... Um, uh, with the the Eskimos on the, shoot, I can't even remember the name of the islands now. The islands right off of Alaska, so just south of Alaska. And I'm forgetting the name of of them, I apologize. But let me read you first 
the um, synopsis and then a little bit of the first chapter. In 1911, a boy from Abeville, South Carolina, had his first taste of flying. In 1926, two years after the plane crash death of his best friend, John Robert Shaw attempted a solo flight record in a refitted Curtis Jenny, sponsored by a Miami newspaper. On April 23, 1926, half of the journey was completed. On April 27, his plane was caught in a storm, went down, and for 17 years he was missing, presumed dead. This is his story. In The Longest Winter, Julie Harris has crafted a wonderful fictional biography of John Robert Shaw's life. His story was one of despair and courage, tragedy and triumph. Stranded on an uncharted rocky island, his body broken by the crash of his airplane, John Robert is adopted into a tribe of Eskimos. In this amazing tale, Julie Harris has done a remarkable job in capturing the Native American culture and one man's struggle to retain his sanity in a harsh, heartless environment. It is in this desolate landscape and among these primitive people that he discovers the true meaning of life, love, and courage. In a riveting description of life in the wild that rivals Jack London and John Muir, Julie Harris has created a powerful and deeply moving novel. Once read, it cannot be forgotten. All right, tonight I've decided instead of reading from chapter one, I'm going to read a snippet in the middle, um, page 174, where this character, John Robert Shaw, is talking about these people he's come to live with and be so entangled with. Kids here don't seem to fight much, and if they do, no one steps in unless blood's going to be spilled. And it's usually one of the older kids who does that. If an adult gets involved, it's very serious indeed. Asuluk can stop a fight before it starts just by walking past. But other than that, they wouldn't know authority if it bit them. And if it did, they'd just bite back. I love these people. It's this calm contentment that shines in their eye that makes a difference. I guess it was the hardest thing for me to accept about them. They spent their life not knowing what warmth was, not knowing what real food was, not knowing what it was like to walk around half-naked and suffer serious sunburn, and not caring either. Just this awful, dumb acceptance. And that's part of his musings and the lives of the people that he lives with, and that's something that I really love about this book, is you, you're in his thoughts so much, and it's so wonderfully done. And then the last book is one that I have read multiple, multiple times um, by an author named Terry Blackstock, and I've read a lot of her other books. She writes a lot of um, Christian um, um, not exactly adventure, but um, but suspense. She writes a lot of suspense books. Uh, she wrote a series um, I think it's New Point 911 about um, a bunch of rescue workers in a certain town in these different scenarios. She wrote a, a series about kind of a end of the world rapture almost scenario and what it's like afterwards. I don't remember if it's actually rapture or if it was just kind of end of the world, like all the electricity suddenly didn't work kind of scenario. I really enjoyed those as well. 
this one is different. This one's almost more of a romance or a general fiction, um, but it's about these twin girls. So let me read you the first little bit, and then I'll read you the synopsis. Chapter one. There's a question that haunts me in the blackest hours of night, when wasted moments crowd my dreams and mock the life I know. The question is this. How could a child born of privilege and promise grow up with nothing? I was somebody when I was born. Lizzie, my twin, says we were heiresses all along. Our grandfather was a billionaire, she says. Just think of it, Cara. There were newspaper articles about us when we were three. They called us the Billion Dollar Babies. And then the synopsis. They grew up in squalor, never guessing the riches held in trust for them or the love that lived to call them home. Twins Cara and Lizzie knew they were heirs to a fortune. Billion-dollar babies deprived of their inheritance and forced to live with uncaring relatives in a ramshackle trailer in a seedy, stinking, one-stop town. They've been told all their lives that their stepmother, Amanda, has stolen their money and they can't wait for the day when they can sue her for everything and leave their sad, comfortless life behind. But then Amanda arrives with gifts and an amazing story and an even more unbelievable offer and everything the twins have ever known goes out the window. She says that she's always loved them, that she promised their father she'd take care of them, that she's been kept away all these years by legal technicalities and their greedy grandparents who want a share of the fortune. But now she wants the twins to come live with her. She wants them to have their full inheritance, which is a problem, especially for the suspicious Kara. When all you've known is deprivation, how can you believe a gift of grace? When you've been lied to for so long, how can you ever know the truth? Intensely involving, laced with gritty realism, but infused with hope, Covenant Child is a story that will grip you from the outset, keep you reading late at night, and then leave you pondering for weeks to come. And that is, again, Covenant Child by Terry Blackstack. And the other titles, which I'm just going to place here at the end of the episode so they're easy to find, is The Longest Winter by Julie Harris. The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard. The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White. And The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Some books that I have loved and kept and intend to keep on my bookshelf as long as I'm around. Thank you so much for listening today. Hopefully you pick up one of these books and love them as much as I do. Have a great day and goodbye. If you love this episode and would love to hear additional episodes, have access to extra content, and are passionate about caring for the needy as I am, I encourage you to check out my Patreon page. You can find it at www.patreon.com shereads. There are different levels at which you can help. One dollar a month gets you early access to all my free episodes and could help plant three potato plants to feed the hungry. $5 a month gets you two book lists a month in addition to early access, as well as some additional read-aloud podcasts and could buy a coat or shoes for a homeless person. $10 a month gives you access to all of my episodes, book lists, and more while helping a poor family afford hygiene products or allowing local gardeners to plant three extra rows of plants in their garden to give people in great need. Again, you can find that at www.patreon.com slash shereads. Thanks so much for listening today, and I can't wait to talk to you again next week.